My name is Marty Golubitsky. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this month's Science Sunday's talk. I'm a uh, professor in the mathematics department and also associated with the Mathematical Biosciences Institute, the center that's sponsoring today's event. Today's talk gives those of us who organize the Science Sunday series the opportunity to show off yet another of the many talented faculty who can be found at, uh, in, at Ohio State in the College of Arts and Sciences. As some of you may know, uh, several years ago, Ohio State decided to grow its research strength in several uh, discovery key areas. One of these areas was translational data analytics, which intersects MBI's interest. Indeed, a growth area in the bio and biomedical sciences is the analysis of big data, uh, such as appears in studies of the genome and personalized medicine. In his day job, Professor Kale uses a perhaps unlikely combination of pure mass, topology, combinatorics, and probability theory to discover structure and shape in, its big, in big data. Today, however, Dr. Kale uh, will explore accomplishments of Greek mathematics, many of which are still relevant today. Join me in wel welcoming Matt Kale, who will talk about Archimedes, mathematical superhero of the ancient world. Thanks for the kind introduction, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to uh, give a public talk. It's um, <clears throat> it's unusual, I think, to get to talk about our, say, mathematical interests uh, <laughs> in public. You know, they usually, they usually don't let us do that. And we have you know, conferences that are sort of for specialists, and we just sort of, there's 10 other people in the world who are interested in the same thing that we are. <laughs> Um, but I feel like everyone uh, should be interested in Archimedes, and the more I've learned about him, um, the more amazed I've been. So I think that uh, <clears throat> everybody has heard of Pythagoras, you know, the Pythagorean theorem, and uh, people have often heard of Euclid, and Euclid's Elements is probably uh, the most impactful geometry text in human history. Um, but I think... Uh, Archimedes was the greatest of them all, of the ancient Greek mathematicians. And there's a strong case to be made for greatest mathematician of all time. But um, it is very subjective, and so we can come back to debating that later. <laughs> so here's a, a nice painting of Archimedes uh, by Fetty. It's uh, Archimedes Thoughtful is the title of the painting. And um, there's a few things that are uh, maybe noteworthy um, in here. Uh, he has some kind of mathematical instruments at the tractor, and then it looks like maybe he's got a drawing of a sphere on, on this paper. We'll, and we'll come back to this. So uh, it, he's sometimes called Archimedes of Syracuse. Um, so uh, this is where uh, Sicily is. Sicily is the uh, <clears throat> largest island in the Mediterranean. And uh, this was part of the Greek empire at the time. So we think of him as a great Greek mathematician, although now Sicily is part of Italy. Um, and uh, Syracuse is, uh, we can zoom in a little bit, it's on the east coast of Sicily. <clears throat> this was during the, um, well, we'll talk a little bit about what's going on, what else is going on in the world uh, at the time during Archimedes' life, but uh, one of the things that happens is the Second Punic War, and so you can sort of see, be, this is a war that uh, involved all the Mediterranean powers at the time, and some historians say, sort of in terms of its impact or its magnitude, this was sort of the largest war in human history, even bigger than World War I or World War II. So they're sort of tumultuous times, and that um, Sicily and Syracuse are sort of strategically important for the uh, navies, uh, and their location, strategically important for its location in the Mediterranean. So this is just a little context. 
and, the, and just what's happening in the world right now in the life of Archimedes, um, the, the Roman Empire is about to sort of begin its um, hundreds of years of um, kind of uh, influence. Okay. So here's some of the art from the period. Uh, this is the, um, the Nike of Samothrace. Or the winged victory of Samothrace. It's uh, one of the only statues that survives from the time, but I think it's just incredible. Um, there's some other statues that are similar, sort of that reflect the art of Hellenistic Greece, uh, but most of what survives is Roman copies of the original Greek statues. But this statue still survives, and it's been prominently displayed at the Louvre for some years now. And just a close-up, it's amazing. It looks like, you know, real feathers almost, but it's, it's made out of stone. So, um, so I was giving just a little context and background that what's happening politically in the world now is um, it's sort of the peak of the golden era, Hellenistic, Greek, um, mathematics and art, and the Roman Empire is sort of about to start to begin um, waxing in its influence. So the first story about Archimedes I want to tell is the story of the golden crown. So um, we hear a story maybe a hundred years after Archimedes dies from Vitruvius, and uh, Vitruvius tells us that uh, the king of Syracuse, Hero II, had asked Archimedes for his help with something. Um, the king had um, given some gold to a goldsmith and asked him to make him a crown, and then he made him a crown. And the crown weighs exact same amount as the gold that he gave him, but the king gives Archimedes this problem. He says, how do I know that he hasn't cheated me? How do I know that he hasn't cut off some of the gold and replaced it with an, an equal uh, mass of silver, kind of cut the gold with silver? So by the way, this, this crown that we have here on this slide is also roughly the same era and same, same time and place. So this might be what the crown looked like. So it's a very irregular shape. You, know, you can't just compute its volume with a simple formula like it's a cylinder or something. So people have, um, so then Vitruvius goes on to tell the story of how maybe Archimedes did this. And he says, uh, what Archimedes did is, um, <clears throat> he took uh, an amount of gold that was equivalent to, that weighs the same amount that the crown does, and then um, first submerged the crown in water, and you know just make sure the water is just up to the top of the bin, and then take the, take the crown out, and now put the mass of gold in, and see if it comes up right up to the same level. And if, if you've replaced it by something less dense, silver is about half the density of gold, then, um, then you would need more volume to make it weigh the same amount. So then the, the little tub should overflow. So this is the story sometimes people tell of how he figured out if the crown was gold or not. And here's one artist's interpretation of the moment that he comes up with this idea, you know, Eureka. Um, the, the bathtubs overflowing. So Archimedes has discovered the um, principle of displacement of liquids. Um, but there's a number of problems with this explanation that Vitruvius gave. And um, <clears throat> so one, and maybe the biggest problem, is that it, it wouldn't work. <laughs> so we could just cut straight to the chase with that. Um, the reason it wouldn't work is um, you can kind of do the math and figure out, I jotted down some notes because I know I wouldn't remember the numbers. So you make some reasonable assumptions and you assume that, you know, here's how big the crown is. And um, let's say he cuts it with some silver, but less than, say, 30% or more. Um, and then if he cuts it with even more silver than that, then the problem becomes even greater. So you try to figure out what's the difference in displacement between the actual crown and equivalent amount of gold. And 
Um, and you assume you're in a tub that's like, let's say, 20 centimeters across or something that you can just barely submerge the crown in, then you can just barely submerge the gold in. Well, what's going to be the difference in the displacement of the water? It ends up being less than half a millimeter. So the problem is there's um, all these errors in the proposed experiment, like surface tension of the water. There could be um, air bubbles in the sort of leaves of the crown. And um, also, when you put the first thing in, the crown itself, you take it out, some water sticks to the crown. So all those things end up having a bigger effect than, um, than uh, the difference in displacement of uh, the mass of gold. So another problem with this, uh, by the way, is you have to come up with a bunch more gold. And, and maybe the king just had an equal supply of gold on hand, but um, it seems a little suspicious. So, so a lot of people have thought about this story over the course of the last couple thousand years. And one of them is Galileo. And Galileo says, no, <laughs> no Vitruvius, that is, that's not how he did it. And, and I love, um, yeah, so I love um, <clears throat> Galileo talking about uh, Archimedes. So he studied Archimedes' writings, and I, he says, you know, um, to him the biggest problem is not just that it wouldn't work, and that, you know, maybe the king doesn't have an exactly equal amount of gold on hand to try this silly experiment, but he says um, that if you've read Archimedes and how creative and how intelligent he is, um, that uh, there's no way he would have done it in such a sloppy way. So, in, um, yeah. So, what Galileo says uh, Archimedes did is, oh, sorry for this slide. He says, take the crown and then uh, take a lever and take a little um, piece of gold, just a little nugget of gold, and just put it far enough out on the lever that they balance. Okay, so we could do that. We could take a crown and just a small amount of pure gold and just get them to balance on the lever. As you know, Archimedes is quite fond of levers. <laughs> and then you put them in water. Then you submerge the crown and the, um, the gold nugget in water. So Archimedes wrote treatises on levers that Galileo read. And he also wrote treatises on the principle of buoyancy that the amount of force that's pushing, so it seems like you're lighter when you're underwater, right? But it's just that gravity is still acting on you the same way, but now buoyancy is pushing you up. And the buoyancy is proportional to the volume. So when you submerge these both in water, um, they weigh the same, or at least you know, with the lever, they weigh the same. And then, so they balance. But now if um, <clears throat> The principle of buoyancy should say if they're the same density, then the you know the buoyancy of the water should push them up an equivalent amount. But if they're um, not the same density, then all of a sudden your lever tips, and you could just do this. You could actually just have a small amount of water to um, to put the each object in. You don't even have to put them all in one big tub. So you can do the back of the envelope calculation on this too, and how much of a difference in force would it make? And it's something like, you know, again, making a bunch of reasonable assumptions along the way, something like 13 grams of force. And so that easily a balance can detect that. The balance just goes, you know. So that, that makes a much bigger difference than any of these other sources of error that we were talking about before with sur um, surface tension of the water or anything like that. So Galileo says that um, this is how Archimedes did it. Um, I have to go back to that slide because I love this um, Galileo quote. He says, how inferior all other minds are to Archimedes' mind. <laughs> and, and what small hope is left uh, to anyone of ever discovering things similar. So. Uh, most of the um, slides that we have today are, you know, various artists' um, paintings, renditions of what they think Archimedes might have looked like or of, it, of his inventions and so on. But in Galileo's case, we actually have, um, this was a portrait in his time by uh, Susterman's. Susterman's painted a couple of uh, portraits of Galileo. So this is actually what he looked like. And... Um, 
he looks a little frustrated to me in this in this picture. And I, you know, when you juxtapose it with this quote, it seems like maybe he's frustrated that um, he'll never equal Archimedes in his accomplishments. But probably more likely, he was just frustrated that he was under house arrest for the whole rest of his life. <laughs> okay. So he, he thinks that this is the way Archimedes did it because besides being a more accurate kind of experiment, it's exactly based on the kinds of things Archimedes was interested in, the principle of the level, <clears throat> sorry, principle of the lever, principle of buoyancy, and so on. So the next story about Archimedes is the sand reckoner. This is sort of a, you could say, mathematical treatise that he wrote, and one of the first mathematical um, things that we'll talk about. So he, he was interested in very, very large numbers. Um, <clears throat> so he wrote a letter to um, King Galan, who, this is the son of Hero II, who we were talking about before, and... Um, I think he was only in power for maybe a year or two between King Heron and um, the grandson, Hieronymus. Um, so Archimedes writes, writes him a letter, or, the, or his treatise has sort of been the form of the letter to the king. He said, some people think the number of the sand is infinite, but some people think it's just, um, he goes on to say, some people think it's finite but very large, and you couldn't ever name a number that large. He says, but I'll show you that, um, and it's easy to follow. I'll, I'll show you a simple argument that we can name numbers that are very big. So big, some of the numbers named by me, um, not only uh, the number of the mass of sand equal in magnitude to the Earth, but also the mass equal in magnitude to the universe. So let's again put this in sort of context. Where are we historically? They didn't have... Um, any uh, like kind of base 10 notation like we take for granted now for writing numbers. And they also didn't have the kind of algebraic notions we have, or they had the notions, but they didn't have the notation for um, you know, exponentiation and things like this. So first of all, Archimedes shows off a little bit by just trying to construct very large numbers. And it's very wordy because it has to be. He doesn't have the notation in place. But in this letter, he describes some very, very large numbers. And it's sort of you know, well, if you multiply a bunch of times, it's essentially you know, exponentiation. But then you can do that operation. So he essentially kind of ends up with something that's like nested exponentiation. And the biggest number that he names here ends up being equivalent in our notation to 10 to the 8 to the 10 to the 8 to the 10 to the 8. But um, in that order. So you can think about this. 10 to the 8 to the 10 to the 8 to the 10 to the 8th power is actually a bit larger number. But, so the order in which you exponentiate matters. But um, here you can simplify this expression. Um, you know, a to the b, if you raise that to the c power, that's just a to the b times c. So by the way, in this treatise, Archimedes derives some of the basic rules of exponentiation. And he says, essentially in there, that 10 to the a times 10 to the b is 10 to the a plus b. So, um, so first he's just kind of playing around and saying, look, I can name some big numbers. But, but then it gets interesting, and he starts trying to contemplate, well, how many grains of sand would you need to fill the universe? That's a fun question, right? <laughs> so he draws on, um, for inspiration, some work of his contemporary Aristarchus, I don't know if Archimedes and Aristarchus knew each other, but they were alive during the same time. Aristarchus was maybe 20 years older than Archimedes. So one of the things that Aristarchus did that's really remarkable, and I think is one of the triumphs of Greek science, he estimated the distance to the moon and the size of the moon so this is um, an account of Aristarchus's work from maybe the 10th century or so. And the smallest circle is supposed to be the moon and the bigger one, the earth, and the bigger one, the sun. But it's not supposed to be the scale. And even to Aristarchus, that picture would not be the scale. 
it's just drawn this way so that we can make sense of what are the relevant angles and lengths that we need to work with. So let's back up a little bit. First of all, um, Eratosthenes had already computed the circumference of the Earth. Have people heard this story before? Um, so um, Eratosthenes was, uh, uh, I think, sort of a librarian at the Library of Alexandria, and he read an account um, that uh, on the certain day of the year, the summer solstice, that the sun shines straight down this well, which is, um, I think, in Alexandria or someplace that's very close to the equator. And so then he decides to actually check this himself. But he also looks at another place that's about 50 kilometers away on the same day. And um, they, they, there, the sun doesn't shine straight down at noon on the summer solstice. It's, there's a little bit of an angle. And it, you can figure out what the shadow cast is. So then from that, Aristosthenes um, deduces the circumference of the Earth. And so he, he already knew the Earth was round. And then he says, here's how big it is. And he was, this is just naked eye observations, but he was within, let's say, 5 or 10% of the right answer. They, the Greeks knew what, how big the Earth was. So I think a lot of people have heard this story of Eratosthenes, but far few people have heard of Aristarchus's work. So Aristarchus goes even further, and he says, well, how big is the moon? How far away did the moon? I love asking people about this, because if you ask one of your math or sav physics-savvy friends, they might say, yeah, I think I've heard that. And you say, well, then how did he do it? And they say, well, trigonometry or something? It's like, yeah, it's, it's, or something, you know? <laughs> Tri trigonometry, except you don't know the sides of any of the triangles. I mean, where are we even going to start with trying to figure out how far it is to the moon? So what Aristarchus does is um, he waits for a lunar eclipse. And by the way, the, the evidence is that not only could the Greeks predict lunar eclipses, but also solar eclipses, which are much harder to predict, it turns out. He did much more accurate kind of astronomical observations and more complicated math to predict solar eclipse. But Aristarchus waits for a lunar eclipse and observes it very carefully. He sees the shadow of the Earth going across the moon. And he can see how big the shadow of the Earth is. But he already knows how big the Earth is by Aristophanes' um, calculation. And so he knows how big the Earth actually is. And then he sees how big it appears to be when it's projected against this screen very far away, namely the moon. And so then from that, he can deduce how far away the moon is um, and how big the moon is. It's amazing. And he was, um, so it's not quite clear how accurate he was, but some people say that he was also within about 10% error or something, that he, just with naked eye observations, figured out how far away the moon was. And then he went on to try to figure out how far away the sun was. And this is the most difficult part of this calculation. And the basic idea is um, you want to measure the angle that the Earth, sun, and moon make when the moon is at half moon. And um, his, his, um, you need more delicate information than what he had. You, to really do this, his experiment was sound uh, philosophically. Um, that his ideas were all correct, but he just didn't have sensitive enough instruments. Like, you're trying to figure out exactly when the half moon is, um, and you need to be accurate within, you know, 15 minutes or something, not just, like, which night did it happen on. You need to be accurate to more like 15 minutes or something to get a good measure of this angle. But, um, so they think that he thought the distance to the sun was maybe on the order of, like, 9 million miles. So that sounds... Maybe, on one hand, not great, because we know now it's more like 90 million miles, right? But it's, it's really impressive, right? That he's, again, just naked eye observations and deep thought. He's thinking about how far away is the sun. And what he realizes is the sun is much farther away than the moon. And then it must be much larger. Because the sun and moon are um, each about the same size in the sky. That's part of what makes eclipses so fascinating, right? So solar eclipses especially. So, um, so our Aristarchus concludes that the sun is very far away and is much larger than the Earth or the moon. And so then he proposes a heliocentric solar system. So I, I don't know why everybody still says Copernicus, right? Because like, in fact, Copernicus says it was Aristarchus's idea. 
um, the heliocentric, or he's following Aristarchus's writing. It's sort of one of these things that humans discovered, that the sun is at the center of the solar system, and then sort of um, Aristotle and Ptolemy and others thought, no, we like the geocentric system better, and, they, and then they kind of won that intellectual debate, and then it just, we just continued to try to work with the geocentric system for hundreds of years. And it ends up being a big mess by the time you get to um, Kepler and people who really want to try to kind of predict the motions of the planets um, more accurately. So, so Archimedes is aware of Aristarchus's work, and he's he really likes it, and he is totally on board with the heliocentric system um, for our solar system. So Archimedes, going back to the problem at hand, he's interested in. Um, trying to figure out how many grains of sand can fill the universe. So oh, the other thing that Aristarchus um, had thought about and that Archimedes comments on in the Sand Reckoner is that um, the stars are very far away. All the other stars besides the sun, they're even farther away. And they think that's true because they don't observe any parallax. They try to measure the angle of that star, where that star is in the sky here, and then you know when the Earth is kind of as far away as it's going to be, like six months later on the other side of the sun, measure where that star is again, and it just seems to be a fixed point in the sky. So again, their methods were sound, that philosophically this is um, very keen, <laughs> their idea to try to observe stellar parallax, and that's exactly what astronomers do now. They just didn't have telescopes or sensitive enough instruments to really measure it. Um, okay, so on Archimedes' calculation, he, he just says, well, we don't really know how far away those stars are, what kind of sphere they live in, but let's just for fun say that the diameter of the whole universe to the diameter essentially of the solar system, or you know, the, at least the Earth's part of the solar system, um, is the same as the you know, diameter of the Earth orbit to the diameter of the Earth. And remember that they, they know the diameter of Earth's orbit around the sun, or at least they, they've tried to compute it, Aristarchus has, and thinks it's maybe 9 million miles or so, and they have a pretty good guess to the diameter of the Earth by um, uh, Eric Tosny's work. So then the missing thing in this equation is the diameter of the universe, and he makes some assumption. Um, maybe, maybe there's some nice proportions in the universe. So then what does he come up with? Uh, he decides that the number of grains needed to fill the universe is something like 10 to the 63. He just comes up with this big number. One thing that's kind of um, intriguing is that um, there's a sort of coincidence. So um, if you broke those grains of sand down further into nucleons, I mean, so most of the mass of the universe is in protons and uh, neutrons. Um, so those are um, called nucleons. Electrons are much, much lighter, right? So um, this is uh, Eddington's number is the number of nucleons in the observable universe. And now with modern um, observations, that's what we think the answer is. It's 10 to 80 nucleons. So like Archimedes has a bunch of kind of wrong assumptions. He, the universe is much larger than what he thought it was. And also, he's saying, well, in that smaller universe, what if it's completely filled up with sand? Just, there's nothing else in there, just sand. Then how much sand? And he said 10 to the 63 grains of sand. But it's just kind of amazing that that answer ends up being what we think the mass of the universe is, basically, more or less. That's what we think today. So, you know, just a coincidence, I guess, or... Or maybe Archimedes was a time-traveling scientist. <laughs> We're not sure. So especially until the Middle Ages, Archimedes was best known for his inventions. It's really the last 500 years or something that we've really come to appreciate his mathematics. Um, and that continues to unfold today. But let's talk about some of his inventions. A lot of these come into play in the defense of Syracuse. So this is around uh, 212 to 210 BC now. And um, 
Hero II had been kind of a loyalist to um, Rome, and then uh, he passes away, and his grandson, Hieronymus, um, is, uh, is in power, and they're maybe wanting to align more with Carthage, other powers. And so Rome isn't having it, and Rome starts to attack the island of Sicily. And this is um, the king asking Archimedes for help in this painting. Archimedes is like sitting on the ground. Uh, the, the color didn't come out great on this slide, but the, he's working on his math, and then the king rides up on a horse and asks him um, for help defending the city, Syracuse. So what did Archimedes do to help defend? We have a, a lot of stories about this. Most of them written, you know, 100 or 200 years after Archimedes died. So one is that he invented new kinds of catapults, really powerful catapults, catapults that could um, uh, shoot farther than catapults had before, maybe like trebuchet-like devices. So that's one of the things that we have records of him doing. <laughs> Another thing that they talk about after Archimedes died is the, the Archimedean claw, or, or literally like the iron hand. And they say, so you can think of the catapults as your sort of long-range defenses, right? Like you, when the chips are way out there, you can just see them. You want to hit them before they get too close. But what about the ships that do get close? Then, um, then they say that Archimedes had some kind of iron hand that would come out of the cliff wall and... Uh, tip the ships over. And, and we're not really sure what that was. The, the speculation is um, essentially some kind of crane with something like hanging on it and some kind of lever that maybe something that could pick the ship up out of the water and then drop it again and it would actually sink. So, so people have actually... There, I, I was Googling this over the last couple of days. There was some TV show called... Um, Something like super weapons of the ancient world or something. And so that, that was one episode that was devoted to the Archimedes claw. And these people made some kind of crane lever sort of system that could actually pick a ship up and drop it and it sunk the ship. That, that was their experiment. But I love Perigi's, uh, the artist, his interpretation of it is it's actually literally an iron hand just picking the, the ship up out of the water. It's just, it's too good. I love this, this painting. So here's another painting uh, by Parigi. Um, and this is maybe the most famous, the most notorious, you could say the most controversial of Archimedes' inventions to defend Syracuse. Did he make a heat ray? <laughs> so a lot of people have wondered about this. Um, they say that he did. Um, the people, again, it's like a hundred or a couple hundred years after the siege of Syracuse there's accounts of him having some kind of mirror and catching ships on fire, actually catching them on fire. So keep that in mind, like some, some historians now, they say, well, we don't know if he actually caught the ships on fire. Um, maybe he just kind of tried to use the light to blind the sailors, you know, or something. So this is, this is a controversial point. And um, uh, Obama actually asked, um, Mythbusters to take up this question. <laughs> Mythbusters asked Obama, is there something you want us to do for our show, for an episode of our show? This is what he wanted to know. Did Archimedes really make a heat ray or not? And he may have had national security reasons for asking that that we don't know about. <laughs> Obama wanted to know. So the Mythbusters kind of tried to do it with mirrors, and they couldn't get it to catch the ship on fire. So they were saying, well, maybe it's just kind of blinding light or something like that. But then some students from MIT took up the challenge, and they took, up, they took a bunch of mirrors, and this is part of what's clever. So let's say you have a bunch of mirrors, and what, you know, some versions of the story are that it was a bunch of soldiers' shields standing up on the walls of the city. Um, but one problem with that is how do you get them all to focus on the same spot? Like, we could all be chasing each other around and just have a bunch of little spots, right? So you could say, no, everybody go to my spot, but all the spots look the same. So, so these guys had a really nice idea. Look at in the center there is a big X. 
And it's only the reflective part that um, is the X, and the rest of it is. So they first kind of aligned that to make the target on the side of the ship. And then they went around and um, aligned all the other um, mirrors very quickly to get them all on the same point. Running around, they've got the X in place, and now they're running around aligning all the mirrors. And yeah, they cut that ship on fire. <laughs> so then I'm not even sure what the controversy is anyway, you know, like anymore. Like, could Archimedes have thought of that? We're talking about Archimedes. I think he, he could have thought of that, you know? So, so this is the defense of Syracuse, um, various inventions along the way. Um, so now we come to the um, Antikythera mechanism. And um, this is something that was discovered in a shipwreck in the Mediterranean and near Sicily in the early 20th century. And then since then, they've um, continued to study it. And scientists can shine x-rays through it and um, various kinds of light and figure out what's going on inside of this machine. So here's the reconstruction of it. Um, <clears throat> it's, it seems like it had about 30 or 40 gears. And uh, so they've reconstructed what those gears were and they say it's very advanced machinery. Nobody had any idea that there were machines this complex in um, that time. Uh, and uh, they can, what's really amazing is then they're not just shining light on it and saying what's in there. Then they kind of try to figure out what was it used for. Right? So, what were the, so they start figuring out what the ratios of the gears were. So what they think this machine could do is predict the motions of the five known planets at the time, and that it could also predict eclipses. And um, so you can actually find on uh, YouTube uh, a video of one of these that somebody made with Legos. And um, so it's, they use, I think, twice as many gears as the actual Antikythera mechanism, but, um, but the, uh, all the gear ratios are the same. And then there's these two dials in the front, and it looks like that when the dials point in the same direction, that it's predicting an eclipse on this other dial or something. So it's really a remarkable machine. By the way, this whole thing, you know, with 30 or 40 gears and these dials, it, it's in a box, you know, about this, this size. Um, so, so small and pretty advanced computer. Well, what does this have to do with Archimedes? Um, it's not uh, it's not thought that he made this one. Uh, and the, the best dating on it is maybe a little bit after Archimedes' time, maybe 100 years later. But uh, what there is stories of after the sack of Syracuse, after Rome eventually successfully took over Syracuse and the, the whole island of Sicily, that um, the general, Marcus Marcellus, came back and with a couple souvenirs. And he had two machines like this made by Archimedes that could predict the motions of the planets and so on. And he kept one for uh, personal, um, you know, just trinket, because uh, <laughs> spoils war. And then the other one went in a, like a Templar, sort of on display for people to see in public. So. So there's reason to think that Archimedes was making machines like this. Um, and that the time and place is very close to Archimedes. So even if he didn't make this one, the Antikytheria mechanism, it might have been one of his students or someone in the Archimedes school who sort of um, actually made it. It's the, definitely the most sophisticated computer we know of uh, from ancient times. Okay, so let's get a little bit more into the mathematics of Archimedes. Um, his approximation of pi is something that he's famous for. Um, so the, the idea is that you can approximate a circle by inscribing and circumscribing polygons, regular polygons. So the, um, in the center we have the hexagon. 
So you could think that, um, so if we want to know what pi is, that's the ratio of circumference to diameter for the circle. So that inscribe hexagon, ins whoops, sorry. Um, the inscribe hexagon must have circumference a little bit less than the circle, right? If you go around that inside hexagon, it's you're shortcutting, and you didn't go all the way around the circle. Well, so it's easy to compare the diameter of the circle to the um, circumference of that hexagon. The ratio is three. That's the ratio of the hexagon, you know, the diameter of the hexagon to the circumference of the hexagon is three. So that tells you already that pi is at least three um, from the inside hexagon. And then the outside hexagon, the circumference must be bigger than the circumference of the circle, right? And if you work it out a little, you know, you need to know what the triangles in there are, maybe do a little trigonometry, you get that the circumference of that uh, hexagon is square root of 12, or 2 times square root of 3. So then that tells you pi is at most 3.46. So just from that picture, we know that pi is between 3 and 3.5. But what Archimedes did is he used a regular 96 gon. So, um, so then it's, it's not just the idea of it, you actually have to do it, right? You have to, you have to do the trigonometry to figure out, well, what, are the, what is the circumference of that regular 96 gon inscribed and circumscribed? And so then he, um, he does that in nice ways and sort of um, says, well, I can estimate that angle by this. And, and he ends up with nice fractions in the end. Um, so he, he makes estimates that are simple but um, <clears throat> but accurate. So, uh, so what does he conclude? Uh, he concludes that pi is at most 22 sevenths. That's actually the fraction. And that's often what you'll hear people say is a decent approximation for pi. And then he, he showed that it's at least 223 over 71. So, um, uh, you know, the Greeks were very into um, integers and rational numbers, and you hear stories about, you know, the discovery of irrational numbers. I think Archimedes was perfectly aware of this, and I think he probably also realized that pi is an irrational number and can't be expressed as the ratio of two integers. I bet he suspected that was true, and that the best you could do is just sort of put it between two fractions. So, but that, that's a way of kind of pinning it down. So if you're if you're keeping track, if you work out what those fractions are, he showed that that pi is about 3.14, and you know that the next digit is probably one or two. And so it's a pretty nice approximation of pi that he did. Okay, so another thing that he did, and this is unfortunately in one of his lost works, is he classified the what we now call Archimedean solids. So first of all, there's the platonic solids, and these are the sort of most symmetric um, polyhedrons that you could have. And there's the cube, the tetrahedron, the octahedron, dodecahedron, and icosahedron. So what characterizes those is that every face is a regular polygon, and it looks the same at every vertex. You know, like say in the dodecahedron, you have three regular pentagons all meeting at a corner, and every corner looks like that. So here, you don't have to have every face be the same. You, um, but you still have, to, they all have to be regular polygons, and then it has to look the same at every uh, vertex, at every corner. Um, but these get uh, quite complicated. So for example, here we have something that's called um, the truncated icosadodecahedron, <laughs> and it has 120 vertices. Um, and, and you don't just have like, triangles, squares, pentagons, and hexagons, you know, for your size, this is a um, dodecagon. Uh, so there's an account that, um, I think from Pappas, again, sometime after Archimedes passed away, that he classified these uh, objects, um, and that he came up with a list of 13. And now that's how we know, that the, now we know there are 13. So we think that that's what Pappas is talking about. So Kepler rediscovered this in his um, music of the spheres. He was interested in this, and he rediscovered this, these 13 shapes. But I would really love to know one day, how did Archimedes do this? How did he think of it, and how did he, how did he prove it? It's, it's a tricky theorem, and one of the reasons it's a tricky theorem to prove there's exactly 13 is it's not true. There's infinitely many 
um, polyhedron that satisfy what I just said. Every face is a regular polygon, and it looks the same at every corner. Because like any prism, so you could take like a regular 100-gon and then make it into a prism, and then every side around it, there's 100 square sides, and then a 100-gon on top and a 100-gon on bottom. And then similarly, there's an anti-prism where you just kind of rotate the top, and then you make all the side faces equilateral triangles. So this isn't just a curiosity that these um, come along. It's that if you do the theorem, if you prove the theorem correctly, which we know Kepler did, these show up in your classification. That, that has to be part of your proof. And you can say, we don't want to count those as Archimedean solids, but you somehow have to account for them if you want to say that you know, the only um, polyhedra that have these properties um, are, are the following 13. It's really the, the following 13 plus two infinite families. But this sounds like a very modern um, mathematical theorem where um, you ask, you're asked to classify certain mathematical objects and there's like sort of infinite families and then there's just finitely many counterexamples. So, this, um, so in the classification of finite simple groups, for example, it's considered one of the triumphs of 20th century mathematics that they said all the finite simple groups fall in three infinite families and then there's 28 exceptions. And it's, it's a very difficult proof uh, theorem that took hundreds of pages, tens of thousands of pages, or sorry, hundreds of papers, tens of thousands of pages um, to prove the classification of finite simple groups. So this theorem isn't like, you know, difficult in the same way, but it's, it's, it's similar. It's that you have, you want to classify some kind of symmetries and you get some infinite families. And then those 13 are the kind of special ones, the exceptions. So unfortunately, how did Archimedes classify the Archimedean solids is, is lost. Maybe it'll be rediscovered. By the way, this is one of the things that comes up. If you, uh, it's another thing that's not quite right, what I said that every face is a regular polygon and every vertex looks the same. That's kind of the way they would have talked about it, saying Euclid's elements. But what we would say mathematically today is that something like vertex transitive that you, you have symmetries that take any vertex to any other vertex. So, um, so, the, so this is the cube octahedron, no, sorry, rhombic cube octahedron on the right. So just imagine, by the way, if somebody in Scrabble played cube octahedron and you dropped rhomba on front of it to have the rhombic cube octahedron. Um, I think that would be a legal Scrabble move. I'm not sure. Um, so this is very nice and symmetric, and just by rotating this thing around, you can move any corner to any other corner and have the shape back in the same position. But this one on the left is the pseudo-Ramba cuboctahedron. That the other your Scrabble opponent put pseudo on the front. Like, pseudo-Ramba cuboctahedron. It's um, it still looks the same at every vertex. Every vertex you have three squares and an equilateral triangle, but um, you don't have the global symmetries anymore. So um, it just looks, it, so we would say it's the difference between like a local isometry and a global isometry. What's changed is the bottom, you've taken the bottom and like turned it a little turn like a Rubik's cube or something, and now you've kind of messed up the symmetry. So does that belong in your classification or not? Uh, it depends on what you make your definition. So this is something that the literature is full of um, mistakes but for this reason. You'll see lots of um, textbooks and um, you know, uh, math, popular math articles that say, well, you just want to have regular polygons and the same, um, it looks the same at every corner. But um, if you do that, then there's up two infinite families, prisms and antiprisms. And then there's also this pseudo-rhombic cuboctahedron. So, okay. So, so quickly, I'll say something about the palimpsest. Um, so one of the things that was found in here, so the palimpsest was a text a recording some of Archimedes' work, and then they reused paper. They reused books then. So somebody had bleached out all the pages and then like printed a Bible or something else on it. And so, but then with modern technology, they can sort of shine ultraviolet light on it and recover the, this lost Archimedes works. And so that's been just in the last 10 or 20 years, people have been studying the palimpsest. So one of the things that comes up is the Stomachian, and it's this dissection puzzle 
with 14 pieces, and Archimedes asks, how many ways are there to rearrange these 14 pieces? And it's remarkable to us now because that seems like a question in combinatorics. It's a very modern kind of question, like how many ways are there to arrange these pieces to make this shape? Um, and uh, <clears throat> people thought that combinatorics really, maybe it's only really been an active field for maybe 50 years, 60 years. But um, some people say, well, it began with Euler two or 300 years ago. Those are some of the first real studies of combinatorics. But it seems like Archimedes might have done it. Um, the other people wrote about the Stomachian at the same time, and it seems like it was probably a popular puzzle. And you could just see which animals, which shapes you could make with uh, those pieces. But then Archimedes looked at it and asked interesting mathematical question about it. How many ways are there to shuffle these pieces around? Um, by the way, this is sort of like the closest thing to my own research and anything I'm going to say in the talk is that kind of question I'm very interested in. I'm interested in sort of randomly rearranging shapes. What kind of random shapes can you make? And then to do that, you need to be able to count how many ways there are, how many different rearrangements. At least you need to be able to count it approximately. So, okay, so this is, I want to just tell you one last story, which I think is the most um, remarkable story, the most remarkable part of Archimedes' uh, mathematical work, which is the computation of the volume of the sphere. So, so first of all, let's review how do you know the area of the square is pi r squared. And this is kind of a schematic proof. You divide the, um, the circle up into sectors like this, and then you can kind of rearrange these sectors. And as the number of the sectors is going to infinity, they get thinner and thinner, and this shape here ends up getting closer and closer to a rectangle. And it's r by pi r, this rectangle, it turns out. And so we get like, um, you can kind of guess that the um, area of the circle is pi r squared from a um, method of exhaustion kind of argument like this. But um, another way to say this, uh, it's very clear that Archimedes was doing calculus. Uh, although people like to say it was invented by Newton or Leibniz, he could do everything that we consider calculus today. He could differentiate and he could integrate. And another way to say this is um, the circumference of the circle is 2 pi r. Um, that's just the derivative of the area, pi r squared. So if you know calculus, the derivative of pi r squared is 2 pi r. So if you've defined the circumference of your circle to be 2 pi r, and you know a little calculus, or you can make an argument like this, then that gives you immediately pi r squared for the area. The problem is, in three dimensions, you can make a similar argument, but what it's going to tell you is the derivative of the volume is the surface area. That's more or less what you're going to get. The problem is you don't know either one. If you knew one, you could find the other, but you don't know either one. So Archimedes did something amazing. And this is, we know of one or two other proofs he made of this, by the way, but this was the most remarkable. And people speculate this is the, what he did first, how he actually computed the volume of the ball. So he compares it to the volume of the cone and the volume of the cylinder. And um, here's a picture with all of them um, inscribed. What Archimedes' theorem tells you is that the, if you take the ratios of the um, cone, the sphere, and the cylinder, the, the ratio is 1, 2, 3. That's beautiful, right? So what's much easier is that the ratio of the cone to the cylinder is 1 to 3. But how did he figure out that the volume of the ball is 2? Well, he actually used a lever. In the palimpsest, he describes the method of mechanical the mechanical method or something. And so I don't have a picture of him on a balance, but what he does is he slice, he does integration by slices. And so he looks at a slice of the hemisphere and the cone and the cylinder. So here the cylinder and the cone are shown together. Take a, a slice at the top, a horizontal slice. Those circles both have the same area. And over here on the hemisphere, we don't have any area. It's just a point. And now you lower that slice through the um, shapes, and then say you're at the bottom, then you've got the circle at the bottom of the hemisphere, and the circle at the bottom of the, the cone has gone to a point. So what Archimedes noticed, and all you need is you know, the, the area of a circle is pi r squared, at every level, not just at the top and bottom, the area of the sphere 
plus the area of the cone equals the area of the cylinder. They're always circles. And he's just saying the area of this circle plus the area of this circle equals the area of this circle. So then if you know that the ratio of the volume of the cone and the cylinder is 1 to 3, then the volume of the sphere must be 2. So he computes that the volume of the sphere is 4 thirds pi r cubed. The surface area of the sphere is 4 pi r squared. And he thought this was so important, he did it several different ways. But I think this is the most beautiful way. And again, him using the lever is just amazing. So this is the sometimes called Cavallari's principle. It was rediscovered much later. The idea that if you take little slices and you get the same area in your shape at every slice, then these must have the same volume. Here it's illustrated with coins. Even though they're very different shapes, these have to have the same mass, right? They have the same volume. So, okay. Um, well, I, I think I'm out of time, so I, I won't tell you about another proof that Archimedes did. Um, he, could, he didn't consider this mechanical method rigorous, so he tried to give more convincing proofs. Um, it, nowadays, we would consider it perfectly rigorous because we know how to make integration by slices. That's what we teach our calculus students. You know, we know how to make it precise. Um, but he was worried that it wasn't quite precise, so he also gave method of exhaustion kind of proof where he kind of takes a, a little polygon and spins it around halfway around the sphere, and that gives a really complicated polyhedron, and then he gets in and computes the volumes of all these little fulstrums. So it's a really difficult proof, but by the method of exhaustion, he again computes the volume of the ball and gets the same answer. So um, in the siege of Syracuse, uh, Marcus Claudius Marcellus, the attacking general, had orders to take Archimedes alive, and um, the, there's various <laughs> apocryphal stories. What, and some of the stories are that um, some soldier came across Archimedes and um, asked him to come with him, and Archimedes said, you know, don't disturb my circle. So like, I'm, you know, I'm doing math, leave me alone. <laughs> and, and he got killed um, for his influence. And uh, Marcus, uh, the general was upset that, uh, that Archimedes was, um, was killed in the siege of Syracuse. He wanted, to, he wanted to talk to him. He wanted him alive. Um, I, I like this uh, artwork. And you can see various things in here. Some of these dodecahedrons in the background, notably the sphere and the cylinder on his chalkboard, and also the Archimedean screw, which is also attributed to him. Um, Archimedes considered the computation of the volume of the sphere his greatest accomplishment. For me, if I might have thought maybe the heat ray or something, you know, but he knew how important it was, how deep this mathematics was. It's just a fundamental thing in geometry. How can you do three-dimensional geometry if you don't even know what the volume of a ball is? But he, he figured it out. And um, so according to legend, um, the, there was a, on his tomb, there was a sphere, a cone, and a cylinder, uh, a sculpture. And Cicero tells us 100 years later, he found Archimedes' tomb. And this is a painting of Cicero um, and his friends discovering Archimedes' tomb, brushing away, pulling away the brush and finding it. So you can see the, the sphere way up at the top, the cylinder. So, um, it's a good trivia question to ask mathematicians. It's a good year to ask um, who's on the Fields Medal. Fields Medal is often considered the highest award given to mathematicians. And there's all these you know, great mathematicians that could be, Gauss, maybe Newton. So it's Archimedes. Archimedes is on the, um, the Fields Medal. And I really like that on the back of the, spheres, uh, um, of the Fields Medal, there it is again. It's the sphere and the cylinder. This amazing theorem of Archimedes. So I think I'm out of time. Thank you for your time and attention. I, I do share these stories with my students. I, um, I have to tell you where this first came from. My interest in Archimedes was um, I was teaching at Canada USA Math Camp 
for high school students, and I saw a talk by uh, my friend Sam Payne, who's now a math professor at Yale. At that time, he was a graduate student at University of Michigan, and he gave a talk about Archimedes and the mechanical method to these high school students, and you could just see little minds exploding around the room, but I mean, our minds of the other teachers watched Sam's talk did too, but one thing I loved was these, these high school kids, then they went out, they had a little cult of Archimedes, I think, after that. I, I don't really know what it was. I wasn't initiated into the club. But especially, um, you know, I think there's lots of opportunities as a math teacher to talk about this, especially when we do calculus, when we teach calculus, which is sort of our bread and butter in the math department is teaching calculus to thousands of students every year, all the engineers and all the scientists. Um, is that uh, we should show them, you know, how he computed the volume of the ball. Um, what, a, what a beautiful proof, integration by slices that, that he had. But I think often it's, it's not in a calculus textbook. It's a missed opportunity. Yeah. I don't know much about his youth. I, I think a lot of um, the mathematical discoveries were probably when he was younger, and um, then I think the inventions, um, you know, came out of necessity. Like, when, you know, it seems like Syracuse is being sieged, and then he comes up with the Archimedes Claw and the, the heat ray and all that. But I like to think that as a young man that he had plenty of time to just think and go for long walks, and I think he was, like, a healthy person. I mean, he, he lived to be 70 or 80 years old, and that must have been a very long time. I think, in ancient Greece. So I'd like to think that he, I don't have any evidence of this, I just like to think that he took lots of walks and that he and thought about math a lot and that he was free to just kind of explore what was interesting to him before sort of duty call toward the end of his life. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the, so can you, can you, so you're saying you didn't think that surface tension would really be um, an error in the, in uh, Vitruvius's proposed method of, um, that's right. Right. So I think that, that people, tried to replicate um, Archimedes' experiment by doing what Vitruvius said and what other people said, which was take an equal mass of gold, and then, you know, you put the crown in and pull it out and, you know, and make sure the water is right up to the top and take it out and then put an equal mass of gold in. And if the water comes just up to the top again, then you'd say it was pure gold. And if it overflows, then it would be, um, maybe it's cut with silver. But the, the thought is it doesn't work because the level of the water only increases by a half millimeter. And that might be such a small amount of water that, and also some of the water came out with the crown, sticks to the crown, that then even when it's a little past full, the, the thing might not overflow because surface tension is still holding it together. But so, but I think, so it's controversial. Did, could he have done it that way? Maybe, but I think I, I like to think Galileo is right that Archimedes would have thought of a, a more subtle way and a more accurate way to do it. And and it seems like right up his alley doing it on levers and also using the principle of buoyancy. And it's, it's true what you're saying. So then buoyancy is going to be proportional to the volume. And so then we're going to get a more accurate kind of measurement. Yes. Runs into some paradoxes, which maybe even go back to the Zeno paradox. Is, is there any evidence that, er, that um, Archimedes was worried about these paradoxical issues when his his discovery was basically lost? For that's right, and I think he was worried about. So the question is, was Archimedes worried about paradoxes that come up in calculus about you know, you can you cut something up into infinitely many 
thin slices in infinitely thin and and get the volume of a shape. So he was worried about that. So what he but he did he thought of it different ways at different times. So the method of exhaustion, he wants to say find the area under a parabola, and he he kind of just says, well, I could, you know, maybe there's a little box here, and I can add up this box and add up this box, and so then there's an infinite series that just adds up to something. And I think he was comfortable with that, with the method of exhaustion, that that could be made rigorous. But um, but then he was he liked liked the mechanical method, and people speculate now that that might be how he actually first computed, got the right answer for the volume of the ball, four thirds pi r cubed. But he was worried that it wasn't rigorous integrating by slices. It's a tricky notion to say, you know, you just the areas of these circles is all we're going to compare because that's two two dimensional things. How can you deduce something about these three-dimensional shapes by only two-dimensional notions? Or you could say, another way to say it is, um, every one of those circles has volume zero, you know? And then you're adding up infinitely many things of volume zero to get volume four-thirds pi r cubed. You know, that seems, mm, you know, so Archimedes was worried about this kind of paradox. And so he, he wrote down the method, but then he tried to give more rigorous um, arguments uh, as well, but they were more complicated, more involved computationally. But it's, it's really neat that, you know, 2,000 years later, after a lot of people have thought about infinitesimals and so on, that it turns out the basic method works. You know, it's, it can be made precise. <laughs>